Welcome today to CEDAR's podcast on the Civil Mediation Council's report on mandatory mediation. I'm Laura McGurl. I'm the Director of Commercial Disputes at CEDAR, and I'm joined today by Tony Allen, who is a CEDAR mediator and who is the author of Mediation Law and Civil Practice, which is actually referred to in the report. Welcome, Tony. Hi there. So we're going to kick off by giving a little bit of a summary of the report itself. Um, We're then going to explore the Civil Mediation Council's response to the report. And then we're going to look at some of the key issues which we think are raised by the report, such as the value of mediation, the factors to be considered when ordering mediation, and the cost implications. And then lastly, we're going to touch on how we think mandatory mediation may be deployed in certain sectors and dispute areas. So kicking off with the report, uh, the first question that the report answered was, is compulsory uh, mediation in particular, is it legal? Um, or does it fall foul of Article 6 of the ECHR? And Tony, I know you've written a lot about this and have some very, very strong views. Do you want to pick up on that? Yes. Um, I've always thought this was a nonsense, uh, really. I I was actually at the Halsey hearing when the point was, uh, when the case was heard, and I don't think anyone had any prior notice of its being raised. Um, I'm not even sure that it was supposed to have been raised by the Council who raised it. But it always seemed to me to be a nonsense to suggest that mediation uh, was a bar to going to trial. Very self-evidently, you are not compelled to settle at mediation. And uh, that part of the judgment, which actually was obiter, it had nothing to do with the uh, issues in the case itself, which were all about whether you you could safely refuse an inter-party invitation to mediate, um, has been subject to a lot of criticism over the years. A number of people have uh, wanted to support it, but actually it, it really has never made a great deal of sense. And I'm really relieved to see at last that someone has officially said this just doesn't stack up. The problem is, who is ever going to take another case of the Court of Appeal to get a, an authoritative turning over of that decision, uh, bearing in mind the fact that everyone has already agreed what the out- outcome should be? So then the anyone is going to spend much co- money on, on, on bringing it back to the Court of Appeal in order to get the thing corrected. So there it is on the face of a Court of Appeal judgment, uh, but uh, apparently not right. Now, and the, the, the report really focuses on that distinction that you just drew between what is, is man- mandatory being forced to go through the process of mediation versus being forced to settle. And so what it definitely highlights is that provided you still have recourse to the courts at the end, if it's unsuccessful, uh, then essentially the it does not fall foul of Article Article 6. And, and the report also goes on to then cite a, several examples um, throughout the European Union of where mandatory mediation does take place um, and is considered um, compliant with Article 6. This debate took a slightly different turn in earlier days because everyone used to say mediation must be voluntary Uh, and indeed the CEDAR um, definition of mediation, its earliest definition of mediation actually included the word voluntary in there Uh, but that needed to be footnoted and I always wanted to draw a distinction between whether it's voluntary to continue in the mediation once you arrive which I think is absolutely right and, and I find myself as a mediator saying to people being in mediations, you are not compelled to settle. Um, you cannot be penalized for not settling. 
uh, you are in a safe process where uh, continued participation or not is entirely off the record. But I've never felt the same difficulty about people being urged in various forms of compulsion, if you like, uh, or, or various levels of strength into taking on the process in the first place. Now, it's interesting. We often see people who come through the process, um, at least at the start, who are reluctant to engage in the mediation. Um, and then once the mediation gets started and they begin to work with the mediator, they actually get quite invested in the process. And the report even picks up on this. The, the authors say that this is their anecdotal experience, is that reluctant participants um, can still very often result in settlements. Yes, and I mean, for instance, in they don't really go into much detail about this, ADR contract clauses under which people are compelled by the dispute resolution process agreed in the commercial contract by the transactional lawyers. Those who are involved in disputes probably grind their teeth about the fact that they have got to comply out in the dispute resolution clause. But I've heard of no evidence that people who are forced into mediation by the terms of their own contract um, don't you know? Don't settle as often as they would do if they came in entirely uh, without any kind of compulsion. Yeah, and that that really brings us into the second question that the report answers, which is about desirability. So the <laughs> other question that is that it asks is: It says now that we've determined that it is in fact legal to order mandatory mediation, is it desirable to do so? Um, and the, the report concludes that yes, it is in certain circumstances. It doesn't really go into the, the details of what those circumstances may be, um, but it does outline three principles. So it, it states that where participation in ADR results in no additional time or cost, then it will definitely be compliant with, with Article 6. That's stated in the conclusions, although the report in earlier in the substantive portion of the report, it talks about the cost being proportionate, so not having to be an additional cost, but rather proportionate to the value and the complexity of the case. Um, they also talk about how judicial involvement is proving, they think would prove highly effective, and we'll, we'll come on because there have been some questions raised about that comment. And the last point that they raised is that as mediation becomes a more regulated profession, and as there are more short form and cost effective versions of mediation, they see that the imposition on, on the first point in terms of cost and time seems less, and therefore it's much, like, much more likely to be non-controversial if it's, if it's ordered. Um, so that brings us really, I think, on to the Civil Mediation Council's response, um, and they issued quite a lengthy response. I think it's about a three or four page um, press release in relation to that, and they really raised two issues. So focusing on the, on the first, they really question the use of judicial-led mediation um, in terms of, of its utility and, and in terms of how it would work. Um, and Tony, what are your, your thoughts on that? It, it seemed to be a little bit more fuzzy than that as well, because it's not necessarily so much judges mediating as doing things which are something like a hybrid between mediation and neutral evaluation, and perhaps rather more closely associated with neutral evaluation. I mean, the, the, the case that blew the hole, really, finally, in um, whether or not Article 6 was um, breached by ADR was Lomax, 
uh, where the it, it now seems clear from Lomax that the Court of Appeal finds that judges can order people to undergo judicial neutral evaluation against their will. It, 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 it doesn't actually say in terms that it could be against the will of both parties or all parties. It, the case only involved one party who didn't want to mediate, uh, didn't want to use evaluation and wanted to mediate. So it, 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 the report is much, uh, as it were, less concentrating on mediation and it's called compulsory ADR. So it's talking about a lot of the processes where this already happens as in financial dispute resolution meetings in the family division, um, some of these meetings that go on in some county courts where in, in, in small claims cases where judges in effect get people in and give them a fairly clear steer as to where they think the case is going to go. Um, I have worries about this. I, I certainly have worries about judges being mediators pure mediators. It's a very, very different function uh, in two ways. One is it is not adjudicative. Uh, and uh, I think that there are, although there may be lawyers who raise you happy to let someone else take the blame for pushing a case in one direction rather than another, rather than relying on their own advice. Um, uh, nevertheless, it's difficult for judges to break the habit of, of, of coming out with opinions as to where things are. And, Okay, call that an evaluation and treat it as an evaluation, if you will, but don't treat it as a mediation. Uh, and the second problem about judges either evaluating or mediating is that they also do judging. Uh, they may be evaluating the same parties on, or the same solicitors on one day, and then next week uh, acting as a judge with the same parties. And that seems to me to run the risk of blurring um, margins between the two jobs quite worryingly and uh, if if this week I reject the judge's evaluation what's the judge going to think about it next week when I come in front of him and I want him to find in my favor uh, or, or even if he's if you're before a new judge but they know that you have rejected the other yes. evaluation you know to, uh, you know lunch conversation between judiciary you know I mean who knows what goes on uh, there is really quite an important uh, place for keeping the two functions pretty separate, in my personal view. I, I, I would feel much more comfortable if, if one let judges judge and let mediators mediate. Uh, you, it's got to be more complicated than that because um, it, that just isn't, when we talk about costs, you know, in, in the lower value cases, it's bound, mediation or ADI is bound to take different, cheaper forms. All you have to do is, I think, to read <clears throat> Sir Geoffrey Voss's report about that to the uh, speech to Hull University to see how broadly based his approach is and to realise that there really has got to be um, cost-effective interventions at all, all, all levels. But um, I, I certainly take the view of the, the, the main body of the report uh, advocates, and that is that the cost has got to be proportionate. Um, when it comes to the top-end cases, there are almost always very big institutions involved um, who, frankly, for whom the cost of a, a, a mediator's fee is, 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 is almost irrelevant. Um, what is more significant, of course, and the, actually the report rather 
touches this, rather ignores this, is the cost of the lawyers attending and the level of representation of the lawyers that attend the mediations. And that's where the expense of mediation really lies. Um, and um, certainly, I think um, it, there's little sign that people have been taking seriously the questions about proportionality of cost in terms of representation of mediation. So um, at, at the top end, certainly, uh, I, I see no reason why um, it should not at least be theoretically right to expect people to mediate. And we can come back to that in a little while in some of the specialist areas. Certainly, I've got some thoughts about my main area of practice, which is clinical negligence. Um, all the all the weaponry is there in, in the rules, in, in effect, at the moment, both as to proportionality of costs, as to making requirements that people consider mediations. And I'm less concerned and, and would be quite surprised to find mandating mediation going on much in, in, in clinical negligence other than in egregious refusal cases. Um, but so there you've got insurance companies who are not frankly going to be concerned about the cost and certainly for their own representation and, and their share of a fee and might even be prepared to pay both parties fees. Banks, big companies, uh, really the costs are not matters that need to trouble the courts too much about whether they think where they think that a mediation should take place. Much more significant when it comes to individual private individuals. Yes, and the, the Civil Mediation Council, though, they do touch on that in their response in that they say essentially the, the cost needs to not just be looked at in real terms as an, an, an additional sticker price that is put on top of what the clients would have to otherwise pay, but rather needs to be looked at also in the context of the overall cost savings that settlement through a particular mediation can achieve. So, you know, having having the, the cost saving of not proceeding to trial, not having counsel's brief fees, um, not having attendance fees, not having the preparation fees, um, and, and that type of, of aspect. So looking at it proportionately, but also holistically, um, which I think definitely does need to be to be looked at. The, the issue there is it's a little harder um, for, in particular, non-familiar parties to, to be parties are not familiar with mediation to really understand kind of what is the the overall effect on the ecosystem of the case yeah. uh, rather than just kind of one additional line item that may go into a into a cost schedule and indeed the the fact is we it has to be accepted there are published figures a, a, a good number of cases to go through mediation settle i imagine quite a lot of them settle because the parties themselves choose it almost despite or uh, that the legal advice they get, they want to be out of litigation. They don't enjoy being in there. They would rather be back earning money if they're a commercial business. They'd rather be back with ordinary life uh, and not having to write letters to solicitors and lawyers and uh, in unfamiliar ways, um, which worry them and all the rest of it. Um, and the weeding out of cases which can settle seems to me to have a, a major benefit for the civil justice system in relation to the cases that remain. You know, there's more room for them to be decided. Um, and, and, and we all know about the strains and stresses that are being apparently placed on judges and the pressures that they're under. Uh, something that actually relieves their pressure and takes unnecessary uh, litigation out of the systems um, seems to me to be vital. And actually, this is the point that uh, I had made in my book, which the uh, Civil Justice Council report was good enough to quote. Um, yes. And and that now leads us on, I think, to kind of the, the, 
the, some of the key topics that we thought the report raises. So it doesn't raise it outright, but, but inherently when you read it. And the first is really the value of mediation. Um, and Tony, this is a topic you and I have discussed before, but the report touches on, on the value of mediation, but doesn't really go into detail. But it also touches on the need for uh, participants in litigation to have their day in court, which is a phrase that we, we often see kind of um, sent around. Uh, and so what, what are your views on that? Well, I, I don't know how, how, how many people saw a piece in the um, Times on the 27th of July law section in which a, a retired judge said that he could say unhesitatingly that what the typical litigant reasonably wants and should be normally given is a brisk and uncomplicated passage from issue to trial by a suitable judge and that they want a proper trial and, and, and need a judge for that purpose. I'm sorry, <laughs> if anyone thinks that the day in court you get in a trial is something that's comfortable and suited to their needs uh, any longer uh, in these days of written witness statements, they need to think again. And, and to contrast what goes on in a trial courtroom with what goes on in a mediation room is so utterly different. Uh, and, and where a mediation is so much more completely adapted to people, lay people, having a chance to have their quotes day in court, have their say, be listened to, listen back, uh, to communicate in a safe environment is the fundamental value of, of, of the mediation process. Uh, and I'm afraid the litigation process does not offer that. It doesn't even offer uh, the opportunity to talk about the future litigation decides things on in a retrospective way who was right who was wrong whereas in a commercial case uh, there is actually a chance to renegotiate a future commercial relationship for instance if that seems to be what people want to do if they can put behind them the pain and difficulty that dispute has created for them and i'm sure you've seen this many times in commercial cases lauren yes and i think in terms of Whenever I see that have their day in court, um, I think often people conflate what they see in 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 kind of everyday media um, with uh, parties taking the witness stand and, and having an opportunity to tell their story, to to give their narrative, to give their version, to convey in particular for claimants, and that that is where I really think that is often directed to. It's it's a claimant statement um, for claimants to say this is what happened and this is how it affected me. Um, I think what, in order to manage that, it really needs to be made clear to claimants, your opportunity to do that is at the witness statement stage. And that is often a pen that is not held by the claimant themselves, but typically by their lawyers. So it is not a story that the claimant gets to give. It's not in the claimant's words. It will be close to it, but not exactly. Um, and it's, it's not their document. It will be very much be a lawyer's document. Um, and so I think that there needs to be some management there because I think people have a misconception as to, to what it means. Instead, and as you and I have discussed, you know, in commercial cases, your witness gets up, they give their name, they give their address, they verify that their witness statement is theirs. They may or may not have additions to add to it. And then they immediately, after those four questions, get handed over to the other side's barrister who continuously over the period of time that they are in the witness box picks apart their evidence and tries to put holes in it. That's their job. That's an incredibly unpleasant experience. The witness is on defense the entire time. Um, and 
you know, my view always was there's only one place you go when your witnesses go into, into the box and it's down. Your case may go down at that point. It's very rare that you may win a case. You either maintain the position you had when you went in or you've given up some points which may or may not affect the outcome of the case. And so it really is looking at what is it that people are trying to achieve by having their day in court? Is it that they want to convey their story? Is it that they want to convey how it has affected them? Is it that they want someone on the other side to listen and respond? If that is the case, then you are looking at mediation um, because in the confines of a plenary session, that is able that is able to happen. And that's really important. And you and I have discussed this, I know in particular in clinical negligence cases, but I think also on, on commercial cases, um, on employment cases, workplace cases, any kind of civil cases, for someone to go through the process of being able to articulate and, and begin to move towards closure by saying, this is why I'm upset. This is why we're here today. Absolutely. And, and the, the problem is that the litigation process distances parties from each other from the very beginning. You know, you, once lawyers get instructed, communications have to be through solicitors. And that remains the same. And, and communicate direct communication between litigants is desperately difficult to achieve. Uh, so that uh, offering people a, 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 a safe environment where they sign up to an agreement is formally created, the safety of that uh, place, confidentiality, applying to the whole world, uh, without prejudice to any trial if the case doesn't settle there, with clarity of outcomes guaranteed by the fact that it will only bind them if it's in writing and signed by the parties. Um, this is a, an environment in which people actually, if they want to take it, and they don't have to, they, if they want to take that opportunity, they can actually communicate in a way that they have been barred from doing by the litigation process ever since the dispute started. And if ever the, there was a need for uh, communication, at least to be potentially offered to people, it's when they're in dispute with each other. And to have someone there, uh, I mean, I think the process itself is, you know, the value of the process itself and the way it's set up is sometimes undervalued. We all, we mediators all think we're wonderful. And and uh, I, I, I regard myself as a bolt-on to a really good process. Uh, and the fact that I can go and talk to people privately uh, in one room or another, and perhaps by that means forestall them from saying the wrong thing or making the wrong proposal or the wrong bid and give settlement a, a better chance without in any way depriving people of the right, the unfettered right, uncritical, un uncriticizable right to walk away and say, no, I'll do better if I go to court. That seems to me to be the value of the process. No, and I 100% I, agree with that. And we see that time and time again. Um, and that really then brings us on to, to factors to consider when ordering mediation. So at, at the moment, um, with the exception of a very few at very discrete areas, which are highlighted in the report. Um, the court doesn't tend to order any type of, of dispute resolution um, mechanism for parties to undertake as a means of before they can progress their case. Uh, they may recommend it um, and they will highlight that there are cost consequences if you unreasonably refuse to engage in it. Uh, but that currently is, is, is as far as they go. So if the court were to order, um, mandatory mediation in particular, which is really what we're focused on today. Uh, what factors do you think they need to, to consider? 
But, you know, funnily enough, um, I'm quite happy that someone has now nailed the nonsense about Article 6. And I would be perfectly happy now to see where things go without courts and judges winding themselves into difficult arguments about ordering it. Um, I think that they there ought to be more pressure to require people to perform the obligations that are already placed upon them. For instance, if I can talk about the pre-action protocols. Yep. There are, what, 17 pre-action protocols, I think every one of which um, requires um, ADR to be considered before the case issues. Um, there is a phrase uh, in many of those protocols, which is going to have to come out now if people take the compulsory ADR report seriously. We said, of course, courts cannot order ADR. Well, now I'm afraid that doesn't seem to be right. And that phrase, which I have been criticizing for years, will have to come out of the protocols. Um, but the fact of the matter is that there is very little sign that the failure to com- abide by the requirement to consider ADR or to do a stock take before proceedings are issued is actually enforced. It's not even enforced, or rather people don't even try to enforce it into party. Um, everyone seems to think that, oh, well, if it doesn't really happen, uh, it doesn't matter, um, then let the case be issued. Uh, we, we now know that certainly the QB, uh, Queen's Bench Division, at all times, ADR must be considered. That's the first direction that gets made at the first costs and case management conference in every case. Um, and But in terms of courts now ordering it, take a case like a, 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 um, a, a boundary dispute. Bradley and Heslin, or the, the facts in Bradley and Heslin, or the facts in Gore and Nahid. Uh, in Gore and Nahid, Judge Harris said, I'm not going to order someone to, to, to mediate in these circumstances. It was very heavily criticised because the only real issue was whether you could park for 20 minutes or two hours to unload your vehicle in neighbouring commercial properties. And if ever there was a situation where people ought to try and see if they could all be seen to be seen, try and sort something out, that's that, it seems to me. And to not to criticise people not trying to settle there seems to me to be crazy, but that's my personal view. Um, boundary disputes, easements over opening and shutting of gates, uh, certainly, um, the judge, Judge uh, Norris J, was very concerned about having to produce an exceedingly complicated 83-paragraph judgment, uh, talking about all kinds of difficult conveyancing and prescriptive right issues uh, in order to try and decide whether someone could or couldn't leave their gate open. Uh, in my view, if you have two stubborn litigants don't assume that a mediator couldn't at least say to each of them, do you realise, for instance, that by having this dispute, uh, your your property is valueless, you can't sell it. Um, mediators have got ways of getting conversations going. And if they don't succeed and they want to go back to court, no mediator is going to stop them. But there will be cases where I think stu- you know, intransigence is on both sides and where a, a judge will sniff this out and will say, I really want you to try and settle this case before you come back to court. And we've all had experiences, haven't we? Even a trial starting, every pound spent, the brief fee incurred. And the judge says, after 10 minutes, take an hour to see if you can't sort this out. And they do. And for that that not to have happened probably 18 months before is disgraceful, in my view. But it is, it is, it also highlights the power that the courts have. 
So they have the power to be able to, if 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 they take this forward, um, to say to clients at, for instance, a directions hearing or a CMC, um, you know, we think this is a case that should be mediated more than just giving a steer or we will we will build we want to see that you've mediated maybe not giving a a but we want to see that you've mediated and you're going to be held held to account at the PTR if you haven't um so there are there are prescriptive ways of doing it in terms of building it in at either the pre-action stage or at you know after the exchange of disclosure or witness statements or expert reports um and that will will depend and we'll come on to this on kind of the types of cases but there's also just having kind of a you know at the PTR you are going to be asked did you did you consider uh, early neutral evaluation or did you consider mediation and if you didn't was it discussed why wasn't it discussed because this looks to me like a case that that clearly should um and and there are cases that are not necessarily suitable and we we have talked about that a really great example is if you're looking for declaratory relief on something that is is a black and white legal issue the clause says x or the clause says y um, that, even that i mean I, I find unpersuasive the fact of the matter is that there are very 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 few um legal issues where neither side cares what the outcome is the fact of the matter is, if a precedent might disadvantage you or your business or, or you in some way, there's a risk to you if it goes against you, if you go to court. There's a risk you might want to think of buying up. I, I really don't, I've never bought into the, oh, well, you want to establish a precedent. Um, the, the last precedent of that kind that I can think of, that where no one really cared which way it went, was uh, whether you should have disclosed in advance inquiry agents' films showing that you could do rather more than your medical report said that you could. And, um, a, a, an insurance company took it to court, a decision was made, now they're all disclosed in advance instead of being sprung upon people in ambush in court. Uh, but, I mean, you know, really, what, what are all these points that people don't care about if they go against them? <laughs> no, I think they're they're very it's, they're very 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 rare, um, and I think that that's definitely you know things that the, the court needs to look at when they are ordering is is where you order it and is it discretionary in terms of when the parties decide to to do it, um, but is it something that need that really needs to have been to your point needs to be held to greater account, um, possibly at the PTR stage, possibly earlier, you know, for big commercial cases, <laughs> um, there'll be multiple directions hearings throughout the life of the case. Yeah. The, the parties may be going every two or three months um, for a directions hearing. And, and as, and Lord, as uh, Sir Jeffrey Voss has said, you know, there may there are more than one occasion when people should be reminded about what they ought to be doing in, in, in looking at this. Um, yes. I mean, in my view, a really serious look should be taken before proceedings are issued. And we all know, you know, the cost of issue a £10,000 fee on a claim form for a claim over £200,000 is an immense sum of money and the amount for instance of NHS money that's been spent on court fees uh, alone has been uh, huge so I think there really needs to be a, um, a, a really significant pressure to people to consider mediation before issue uh, the protocols are there to lay out the issues, and of course you haven't got all the evidence in place and you haven't had disclosure and all the rest of it, but in the hands of experienced lawyers, they are very frequently able to give as good a steer as they might be able to do when all of the procedures gone through in order to say, these are the risks. Do you want to issue proceedings or would you like to settle for a bird in the hand, if I can put it that way? 
Yep. It's, it's crude, but nevertheless, that's right. Otherwise, I suspect you're right. I suspect pre-trial review is the moment uh, when judges are really going to say, have you really done all the, everything you should have done? And there is actually going to be a risk that we're going to be cross with you if you haven't. No, I, I think that's right. And then one of the things we wanted to, to come on to was, was looking at how this may apply in certain either courts or in certain sectors. Um, so the first is looking at it at, at lower value claims. So say claims under a hundred thousand pounds, uh, which are before say, for instance, the county courts. Um, so Cedar run a, we run a scheme for the central London County Court, which provides a, a three hour fixed mediation service. Um, uh, and that that's one of the kind of time fixed lower value services, lower cost services that, that the report touches upon. Um, but there is a real question as to when, if they were ordering mandatory mediation, when would that be something like that be deployed? Um, and I think it really depends on, it depends on the case, but the fact is if, if the judge has the power to do it, that is actually really, really helpful because there will be cases where it's very clear that the dispute is not actually about the legal issue but there's some type of underlying issue which is bubbling underneath, which is really driving it. I mean, I think, looking again at Voss's um, speech in Hull University, an awful lot, I mean, and when I talk about a lot, I'm talking about quantity here, of very low value cases are going to be dealt with online. There's going to be online requirements which can easily and cheaply be built into the situation to require people to ind give indications as to whether they might be prepared to settle, maybe building blind bidding into the situation. And this is where the huge majority of civil litigation is conducted. Um, it, that, that, it, the, the higher low value cases of the kind that you get in the yeah. central London County Court or the other county court schemes around the country, will need a, a little bit of judicial monitoring um, and, and district judges will have the opportunity at directions hearings to bring pressure to bear upon it. Um, and, 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 and quite rightly too, but it will, I think, be much more, as it were, custom, custom adjusted at that stage, um, custom, custom built in relation to the nature of a particular dispute. But really, is it right are there, that... Is it right that there should be, should not be? Is it, is it wrong for the, put it this way, is it wrong for the courts to say everyone really ought to try and settle the, their case if they can? That's really what it boils down to. Everyone, and, and there are ways and means, and we've, we, the court, offer you various ways in which you might do it, of ADR, whether it be online, whether it be with a local um, mediation scheme, whether it be you going out into the marketplace and buying a mediator. Um, we think you should try and do this before you ever get to court. Uh, uh, probably tell them that actually, when you do get to court, it may not be quite as pleasant an experience as you as you might think it would be, as you've warned everyone <laughs> earlier on. Um, I think I think that's a legitimate thing for a, for a, for a civil justice system to do, and I think that's the way in which the civil procedure rules were designed. And I think there are possibly there's a strand of judicial opinion which does not accept that that is the situation, that they never accepted that, the, that there has to be a proportionate allocation of court resources, which does not get too much out of balance when dealing with individual cases. Yeah, and I think I think that's definitely what what we see in, in practice is cases can take a life of their own. You see a number of cases which come through where the costs outstrip 
uh, the amount that's claimed. Um, and and so it's, it is really looking at, you know, in the toolbox, what's going to be the tool that will give you the proportionate value for what is being is being claimed. Um, is it is it blind bidding? Is it a fixed one hour telephone mediation? Is it a three hour in person mediation? Um, how is it going to work? And I think one of the other aspects that that definitely has given a big push um, and is a benefit of, uh, of of the COVID era is you know eighteen months ago, twenty months ago, online mediation was very rare. Absolutely. Uh, whereas now it is it is the the go to. And over since March, since the first lockdown of March 2020, um, we have had hundreds of mediations go ahead online, as have other mediation service providers and mediators. And I think clients are now really comfortable with the technology, not least because they're using it for their business. They're using it. They've used it for their social lives. They've had Christmas dinners over Zoom and quiz nights. You know, family quiz nights and um <laughs> And, and Pictionary games and and all that good stuff, and it has meant that as a result, I think the the development in that area has been fast forwarded immensely. Um, and then that then with it brings cost savings and brings more proportionate, um, a more proportionate access to resolution, and also brings access to more experienced mediators. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really, to me, the kind of online revolution that we've had in the, in, in just under two years, um, has been a real benefit to, to the profession and to resolving disputes as a whole. When I, when I think what I used to have to tack on as travel expenses to my, my invoices, uh, before online mediation happened and I haven't put on a single travel expense except for the one mediation I've done face to face in the last 18 months, the huge savings, huge savings. And sometimes it is warranted to still go ahead face to face, and we will see that as as life is reopening. Um, but but in relation to very low value claims, um, it, it often is not warranted having everyone travel across the country yeah. to to one place. And so this gives gives the option of of having something a bit different, um, but that we know is equally as effective. So so um, just in conclusion, I guess, Tony, what would you like to leave us with as kind of your concluding thought on mandatory mediation and the possibility thereof? Well, it'll be very interesting to see whether judges actually do it. Um, I, I think actually, as it so happens, uh, it uh, v. Rail Track, which was the actually the landmark case that really changed things. It, 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 it was built upon the premise that was enshrined in the civil procedure rules that if you behave unreasonably, uh, you may be penalised in costs. Uh, and actually, I think on it's taken a while, and 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 Halsey has taken quite a lot of unravelling. This is the bit of Halsey that does apply. Honestly, the six factors in Halsey have been largely diluted. Some of them never really had a great deal of force. Some of them were obvious, like de- delay a trial, and very, very difficult for a mediation to, to delay a trial. Cost proportionality is one of the factors, and that's a fair factor. But all this is business about don't mediate because you think you've got a watertight case or because a mediation isn't going to settle has been largely demolished in a number of judgments over the years. Um, I, I think, as I say, that the, the, the cost sanctions have worked quite surprisingly well. And 
looking at the present picture, I think it's a pretty rare commercial case that doesn't get mediated before it goes to trial at the top end. We know in clinical negligence that the initiative has been taken by the NHS to, to, to uh, increase its use, and that has worked well. And now claimant law firms themselves are proposing it in their letters of claim. Uh, and I, I have no idea how much resistance there is still to whether one mediates or not amongst um, um, firms who are doing it, but certainly the NHS scheme is very, very busy. In employment and uh, workplace, uh, it seems a, a, a useful thing and, and, and is being deployed increasingly. Uh, and in general commercial cases, as I say, it's a rare case, I suspect, that doesn't have a mediation at some point. Um, it, it, we now know you can do it. And, and the question is, how will that work out in practice? I think the first place it's going to be worked out in practice is at the bottom end of the scale in accordance with Sir Jeffrey's uh, review of the various manifestations of online where it's going to be a requirement, where it already exists. In fact, um, there is compulsory mediation, Mayan. Um, and, and ACAS uh, are, are the two leading examples where you have to do it um, and you, before you can proceed. I, I'm relaxed about people being struck out so long as they could apply to have relief from that sanction if necessary, if there's a good excuse. Um, it will only, mannequin mediation will only grow slowly. We now know it's allowed. We've now got to go through the phase of working out where it best is applied. And meanwhile, mediation is varying or one does is to look at the CEDA um, audits um, and compare how it is now as it, from what the first audit was. It's, it, it is growing, it is in its place. Judicial uh, and other neutral evaluation may or may not grow. I'm not sure that it will in, as, as a standalone. It might work in, in, in certain specific respects in smaller claims. Exciting times. I agree. I think I think it is exciting times. I think the judiciary has a very difficult task of walking the tightrope of, of, as you have rightfully pointed out, making sure that they continue to um, allow the mediation market to grow and foster in the way grow in the way that it has, um, whilst maybe addressing what is a small number of cases that may need to be to be nudged or pushed um, towards settlement. Uh, without sacrificing the the quite good uh, dialogue, which is already taking place between lawyers and their clients and lay clients and, and unrepresented parties in trying to reach settlement, both at the pre-action stage and at, at once, you know, all the way up until the, the courtroom door, um, which is what, what we see. So I think it, it's a it's a difficult task. I think it sounds like they are going to tackle it on a, a court by court basis and, a, and in some instances, a claim by claim basis in terms of the, the type claim type, I should say, basis. Um, but it's definitely a, a space to watch and a space that mediators, I think, can very um, usefully contribute to uh, as as the people who sit who, who sit in both rooms uh, at a mediation, which is how I always like to to, to say it. Um, so thank you very much, Tony, for your time today. And I think we will uh, we'll revisit this in a few months once we see kind of where it goes. But it is it's quite an impactful report. Um, it's a very interesting report. And uh, and it really highlights and gives gives a really good um, summary of the case law that led to Halsey. Uh, but then that ultimately leads to the report's conclusion, which is that Halsey, Halsey was not quite right um, in, in the statement that mediation would fall foul of, of Article 6. So thank you very much for your time today. And thank you to all our listeners um, for tuning in. Have a good one.
Bye now.